You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, the almighty God, the God who created the universe in a word. Lord, you're with us here this morning. We want to give you all praise. Lord, I pray that you would use me this morning to bring your truth. Lord, I pray that your words would be spoken and you prepare our hearts to receive it. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Ryan. Um, For those who don't know me, though I think most people here do, uh, my name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here at River City, and I have the title of Pastor of Care and Community, which is because I oversee our care ministry and our community groups. Uh, But this is actually only part of my job responsibilities. Uh, Alongside those two areas, I also have the privilege of being the missions pastor here at River City. And uh, that means I get to be the one who is in regular communication with our missionaries, uh, trying to support them, uh, pray for them, do what I can to make sure they are continually connected with this body. Uh, This is why we have our missionary spotlights one time every month here. Uh, We wanna make sure that our missionaries serving around the world are not forgotten by us back in Fargo. Uh, So thank you so much for everyone who does support and pray for our missionaries, uh, for our two domestic ministry partners, James Kayser and Jackie Molden, who both work at NDSU uh, with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Um, but also for our international missionaries, Kayla Rust and Jordan and Lexi Hins, who serve in the Middle East, for Mitchell and Emily Cooper, who serve in Kuwait, and finally for Kaylee Delaney, uh, who serves with Bible translation in the Central African Republic. So please continue to pray for our missionaries. Um, Also about Kaylee Delaney, she is coming back to Fargo tomorrow night uh, on furlough, on a break for a little while. Uh, Her flight comes in around 9.54 p.m., I believe. If anyone's interested in going and meeting her at the airport uh, to welcome her well, uh, please let me know. I think that'd be a great way to be able to serve her. Now, we as a church have just finished a series on the book of Philemon, and starting next week, we are going to be starting our next series through the book of Jude. So you can look forward to that next week. Uh, But between these two series, I have the honor today uh, to do one standalone message on the 
topic of world missions. And I want to be upfront and honest with you all this morning that my goal for this sermon is to plant the seed in your heart and in your mind to consider being a cross-cultural vocational career missionary. Now that is not my only goal for this message, but it is the big one. I want you to think whether the Lord may be stirring in your heart to give up comfort, safety, and certainly familiarity for a life on the front lines of frontier missions. Now for most of you, probably around 99% of you, uh, this is not the task that God is calling you to. God didn't create everyone to be missionaries, just like God didn't call everyone to be pastors or pilots or police officers or whatever. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So we are not all given the same gifts, nor the same roles, but everyone is on the same mission together. And for some of you, your mission may be to go. For those of you who may have that spark in your heart, I hope this morning to fan into flame a holy desire to glorify God by bringing the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to those who may never have a chance to hear it otherwise. For you to be a tool that God uses to change human souls for eternity. Now for the majority of you who are not called to be full-time missionaries, well, this message is still for you because our missionaries in the field need you. Not simply for financial support, although that is important, but they need you for your prayers, for your encouragement, and for your partnership. Going back to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says again, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, God designed the church to need one another, to be interdependent. We're not supposed to be self-sufficient hands and feet walking around disconnected from the body. If that goes for us, that also goes for our missionaries. We're meant to be connected, each fulfilling our role for the common good. And as connected members of this body, our missionaries, even thousands of miles away, they need us. It would be tragic if members of this church body were to sacrifice everything they know here, go to a foreign country, face difficulty for decades, laboring for the kingdom, 
and for us back at home to be apathetic about their mission. That would be tragic. See, their mission is our mission. Whether we are called to go or to stay, we are all members of one body, being called to make the name of the Lord known to the ends of the earth, that his glory would be praised and lifted high among all the nations, all tongues, all tribes. We know that one day, this will be reality. Christ has confirmed that in his word. And we get to be used as Christ's hands and feet to accomplish his purposes on earth. What an amazing privilege. So that's really the summary of what this entire sermon is going to be about. The rest of our time together is just going to be expounding upon what I just said. The big idea and the title for this message today is this. God's plan is our mission. God's plan is our mission. And to organize my message for us today, I have two points. The first, God's plan is to receive worship from all peoples, nations, and languages. And the second point, God uses his people to accomplish this mission. And to be making these two points, I'm going to be looking at a lot of different texts, but the starting place for us is going to be Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin opening to Daniel chapter seven. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Um, the Moldens, Jackie and Joshua, are coming down and they would love to put a Bible in your hands. In these uh, church blue Bibles, Daniel 7 is on page 434. Now before we begin our reading of our passage today, I want to give a little context instead of just jumping right into a random book. Uh, Daniel, he was a prophet of the Lord. Now this means that God used Daniel to communicate his message to the world. You probably know Daniel best from his experience in a lion's den. However, there's a lot more to this book than just what you probably heard in Sunday school. David or Daniel received many visions concerning the future and the spiritual world, and our passage today, this morning, is one of them. When this book was written, both Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of God's people, had both been utterly destroyed, first by the Assyrians and then by Babylon. Most of the inhabitants of the land had been taken captive, and this included Daniel. For 70 years, the people of God were in exile. They were scattered. They had no king of their own, and their future likely looked very bleak and very hopeless. It is in this context that Daniel received this vision. Daniel 7, starting at 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days 
and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that'd be kind of an epic vision to receive in your bed, wouldn't it? People coming in the clouds. Well, in this vision, Daniel sees one like a son of man coming in the clouds. Now hopefully, this phrase, the son of man, is familiar to you. Because in the Gospels, this is actually the title that Jesus used most commonly to refer to himself. And in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, Jesus even quotes this passage from Daniel in his trial before the high priest, before his death. So the interpretation of what's going on in Daniel 7 isn't really difficult. Daniel was obviously seeing a vision of Jesus here in the clouds. And in this vision, Jesus, the Son of Man, appears before the Ancient of Days, that is, God the Father. And it says that he was given three different things. First, he was given dominion. Now, if you're not very familiar with the word dominion, it's another way of saying sovereignty and control. And this aligns perfectly with the New Testament where Jesus says that he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. Secondly, Jesus was given glory. Now, glory is kind of a difficult word to define, but here it is something like the highest honor or the respect that you can give to something. If something is glorious, well, it is worthy of praise and adoration. And Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is certainly one to receive all honor, respect, and praise. And finally, Jesus, in Daniel 7, is given a kingdom. And this implies that Jesus was made king. And not just any king, Jesus was the eternal king. David writes that he would be given everlasting dominion, that it wouldn't pass away, that it would not be destroyed. It seems like the vision was meant to be very clear that this was not going to be a kingdom like anything else that had come before it. In Daniel's life, he had already been subject to many different kings, both during his time when he was living in Judah and after the exile in Babylon. But one of the themes of the book of Daniel is that these kingdoms, they would all be short-lived. Whether it be the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all would be over in the blink of an eye compared to the kingdom that was coming. If we go forward a few chapters um, back to Daniel chapter 2, it tells us that this eternal kingdom that was coming would break into pieces all the other kingdoms and it would grow into a mountain filling the entire earth. 
This is actually one of my favorite images in the entire Bible of God's kingdom just being victorious overall. Now from Daniel chapter seven, we know who the king was. It was Jesus. But who would be the subjects of this kingdom? What well, says there in verse 14, tells us that the kingdom would be from people of all peoples, nations, and languages. It wouldn't be a kingdom only of the Jews like it had been before. It wouldn't be a kingdom of one language, one culture, or even one geographical location. This would be a worldwide kingdom with people from all corners of the earth serving the Son of Man together. This probably came as somewhat of a shock to Daniel because remember at this time he had been living in exile. The people of God were scattered. They didn't even have any land at the time. They had no king. They didn't have anything resembling a kingdom. How incredible it is to think that at this time, God promised a kingdom that would be bigger than they had ever had it before of all peoples, nations, and languages together. But this wasn't the first time that God had made this promise. This wasn't a new thing for Daniel. It was more like a reminder because if we read through the Old Testament carefully, we'll see that speckled throughout scripture are various verses telling the same truth. And we're gonna go through a few of them here. Uh, let's start in the book of Psalms. Um, Psalm number two. Psalm two is known as one of the great messianic psalms in the Bible. Messianic means it's talking about the Christ, talking about Jesus. And it talks about how the Christ will have great victory over the nations. And it says in verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. If we turn a few pages more to the right to another famous messianic psalm, Psalm 22 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Going further, Psalm 86, nine, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 102, 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. But the promise wasn't just uh, for the book of Psalms. These promises of all nations can be found in the prophets. Isaiah 49.6, he, the Lord, says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 66, 23, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh 
shall come to worship before me. And I'll do one more from Zechariah because we don't hear a lot about Zechariah often. Chapter 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now I could go on to other verses, but this list was not meant to be exhaustive. God's plan from the beginning has been for his kingdom to reach all peoples, all nations. It started with one man, Abraham. Abraham became the father of one nation, Israel. And he was given the promise that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, that promise given to Abraham was like a seed. And that seed was planted in the ground for around 1,600 years until the Son of Man came and that seed burst forth into a sprout. And this sprout has been growing like a mustard seed into a mighty tree for 2,000 years. In 2,000 years, the gospel has spread from Ju Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now it has even reached 6,000 miles away to Fargo, North Dakota. All of us here today are evidence of God's plan going forth of kingdom expansion happening around the world. The kingdom of God is growing. It has experienced ups and downs throughout its history, to be sure. But the promises of every people and nation and language is becoming more of a reality today than it has been ever before. Now likely, you have heard the numbers of how religion and Christianity, they're shrinking in the West. But let me tell you that God is doing so much that we do not see here in America. I'm gonna give you some information and statistics here about the growth of Christianity in the world. And I do this somewhat reluctantly because these numbers are hard to substantiate. It's hard to know exactly how many believers are in any country. It's hard to know how many are true, genuine believers. And it's particularly hard to know how many believers are in closed countries where just identifying yourself as a believer can put you at risk of great persecution. But nevertheless, I wanna share these because I think they are encouraging. In 1970, Protestant Christians made up only about 9% of Latin America. Today, that number has grown to around 25%. 25% of the continent of South America, Latin America, has become believers. The number of Christians in China is nearly impossible to measure, with estimates that vary widely. 
But according to the Berkeley Center, taking a prudent estimate, the number of Protestant Christians has grown 58 times in the past six decades. It is estimated that by 2030, there could be more than 224 million believers in China. In Iran, the Christian population is estimated to be only about 1.2% evangelical, which is very small. But that 1.2%, that equals more than a million people. And estimates are that this number grows by 19.6% yearly. That's the fastest growing church in all the world, in a country where it's technically illegal. According to census data in Nepal, in 1951, there were no Christians and just 458 by 1961. In 2011, that number had grown to nearly 376,000. And the latest census estimates the community in Nepal of believers is now around 545,000. In India, there are about 27 million evangelicals, growing at a rate of about 3.9% a year. 3.9% of 27 million means there's over a million new believers every year in India. Now, like I said, these numbers are difficult to know exactly how accurate they are, but we do know is that the hope that God gave thousands of years ago is becoming a reality. The nations are hearing the word of God. People are being baptized, and God's praise is being heard throughout the entire earth. I want you to be excited about that, that for 2,000 years, we have seen God's promises take form and that the vision given to Daniel that we read about earlier, it's closer today than it has ever been before. But I also want to be real that the promise is not yet completed. Not yet are there people from every people group, tribe, or language represented before the throne of Christ. There are still thousands of language groups which have not yet heard the gospel. There are still billions of people who have no access to a church, no access to a Bible. There are billions of people that God wants to reach with the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I want to show you a graphic up here. This map shows the countries of the world and how reached they are so far for the gospel. Now, as you can see, over here in the Americas, North America, South America, Southern Africa, Australia, there is an established and a significant church. Most people in these countries have access to the gospel. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that everybody in those countries are believers. 
Certainly not. But it means that pretty much everyone in these countries at least has access to the gospel. Access in their geographic location and access in their language. But that's not the case over there in Northern Africa. That's not the case in Southern Asia. In India, which I talked about earlier, India is the most populous country in the world now. And there are an estimated 1.3 billion people there without adequate access to the gospel. And about the same ratio could be said about Pakistan, Bangladesh, Turkey, and many others. The Joshua Project, which looks into these things, they estimate that about 42% of the Earth's population is still yet unreached to the gospel. So the work is not done. But this leads to an important question. How is this going to happen? We believe that God's promises are true, that representatives from all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. We believe that Daniel's vision was not just an ideal, but it was a future reality. How is that going to happen? How are the nations going to get reached? Well, this is my second point this morning. God uses his people to accomplish this mission. And to make this point, uh, as I did earlier, I'm going to read through several passages together. And this time from the New Testament. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Luke 24 46 to 48. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How is God choosing to reach the nations? Through his church, through us. Now let's be clear, God could do it himself. God doesn't need us. Christ could appear before every single person on the planet today, just like God did to the Apostle Paul. Or, 
God could simply just write out the gospel message in the clouds in every single language all across the planet and everybody could just look up and they would hear it. Or God could do it quicker than that. He could just snap his fingers and every heart on earth would be instantly converted to know him. But God chose not to do it that way. Those are options, but God chose not to do it himself. He decided to use us. God decided to use us, imperfect and flawed humans, as his ambassadors, to spread his glory to the nations. Although all authority on earth has been given to him and he can do all things, Christ gave us the honor and the privilege to be part of his work. He gave us a job to do, which may make you wonder, why did he choose to do it this way? It doesn't seem like the most efficient means to get his message across. Well, here's the way I see it. It's similar to when I give my sons a job around the house. My kids are currently six, four, and one years old. Pretty much any job that I give to them, I could do quicker, easier, and oftentimes with better results than they can. I see a head nodding, yes. <laughs> it takes longer sometimes to explain a task than it would be for me just to do it myself. Choosing to include my kids in a task is currently not for the purpose of simplifying my life, but it does do two things. First, it helps my children to learn, to grow, and to become more mature men. It's good for their development as people. But secondly, it is my joy to include my sons in what I'm doing. Consider this, I love chocolate chip cookies, but do you know what I love more than chocolate chip cookies? I would love chocolate chip cookies made with my son. Baking together with my boys, it grows our connection with one another. It's father-son bonding time. It's fun. And it's much, much slower. But it's totally worth it. And I think this is kind of how it is with God. Having us join with him in his mission, we are growing in our maturity. We are growing in our connection with God. And I believe that God loves to join with us in the greatest mission on earth. Even if it takes thousands of years longer than it would have without us. God's not in heaven in a panic, thinking about how is he going to complete his mission to the world. That is a sure fact. It's coming whether we are a part of it or not. But we get to demonstrate our love for God by joining him on this mission. And for some of you, I hope and I do pray 
that your role will be to go, to be the ones sent to the nations, that you would be the ones declaring the name of Jesus where it has never been heard before. This was the mission of the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he writes in Romans 15, 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I like the word ambition here. It was Paul's ambition to go. Now there were certainly still unbelievers in Judea and in Rome and in Antioch, but Paul's job was not to be a pastor in one location for 50 years. For some people, that is their calling, that is their role from the Lord, but it wasn't for Paul. His heart was to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named before. He wanted to go on the frontier of world missions. He wanted to lay the groundwork. Christ had given him that role. And now, today, 2,000 years later, well, that same task remains. There are still people groups and languages where Christ has not yet been named. If Paul were alive today, there would still be work for him to do in his ambition. If God has put this ambition on your heart, may I encourage you today, don't push it away. Don't ignore it. Take the time to consider if God is raising you up for this purpose, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to be part of God's master plan for all nations to worship him. Jesus told his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest, the thousands of people yet to hear Christ are waiting for workers to come and bring them the gospel. I want you to truly ask yourself, has God given me a holy ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named before? Now, there is more to becoming a missionary than just having ambition. Not everybody who is excited about missions is meant to be a missionary. I need to make that clear. It's like not everybody who is excited about justice should be a police officer. But if you have that ambition, if you have that stirring in your heart, take the time to consider the possibility of making that desire a reality. Pray earnestly for discernment and then come talk to me. I want to hear from you. Um, we as the elders, we want to come beside you and help see if this is truly where God may be calling you to confirm that desire in your heart. Now, as I mentioned earlier, for most of you, your role won't be going across oceans, it won't be learning new languages, and it won't be eating unusual foods. But as the body of Christ, their mission is our mission. We are one body and each part 
needs the other, we all support one another. We all can play a part in reaching the nations for Christ. So this morning, I want to give three ways, three practical ways in which you can do that. The first of which is prayer. In Colossians 4.3, Paul writes, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Let us follow Paul's instructions here. Let us lift up our missionaries in prayer. Pray that they would have open doors for the gospel. Pray that they would be effective in their work. Pray that the Holy Spirit would use them to break down walls of resistance and that revival would break out in the places where they serve. Pray for them with all kinds of requests. And in this way, we ourselves, thousands of miles away, can contribute personally to this mission to reach the nations. Secondly, we can support our missionaries tangibly. Now most of this time, this means financially supporting them. This is biblical. In 1 Corinthians 9.14, it says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. We are the ones who can make that happen so that their ministry for in other countries, well, that they can focus on that and not have to worry about their daily needs. We can supply that for them. Other ways in which you could tangibly support our missionaries is providing them a meal when they're home on furlough. You can let them use your car or your guest room or your vacation rental. Living outside of the country means that a lot of missionaries, they don't have access to these things when they come home. Remember I mentioned that Kaylee Delaney is coming back this week. How can we support her while she is here? In Philippians 2 and in Philippians 4, Paul writes about a man named Epaphroditus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this brother, but what we do know is that his job was he was a messenger sent to care for the needs of Paul on behalf of the Philippians church. He brought something like a first century care package with supplies and it even says that he risked his life for the work of serving Paul's needs. So not everybody has been called to be a Paul, but maybe your role is to be an Epaphroditus, someone who can support our missionaries risking your life for what they need. Finally, thirdly, we can support our missionaries relationally and emotionally. Look at Philippians 1. Paul writes in various verses, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
Paul wasn't with the Philippians as a regular member of their congregation, but Paul was not forgotten. They were in partnership together. They loved one another, and Paul yearned for them. It says later in chapter 4 that the Philippians shared in Paul's trouble. There was a relational and an emotional connection between Paul and the Philippians. And my hope and prayer is that our missionaries sent from River City Church feel the same way about us. That our missionaries on the other side of the world thank God in all their remembrance of us because of our partnership in the gospel. That we would long for each other like spiritual brothers and sisters. We can do this by sending emails, by sending text messages. Perhaps it's having a phone call with them or a video call if they're up for it. Perhaps it means meeting with them when they're home on furlough. Or maybe, perhaps it means buying a plane ticket, flying off to the Middle East, and supporting them face to face. In these three ways, through prayer, through supplying tangible needs, and providing relational and emotional support, we can be a church that truly partners with our missionaries in the gospel, and we can love them well. William Carey, who is known as the father of modern missions, once said this to a friend before he was leaving for the missions field, and I love this quote here. William Carey said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. My friends, only a few are going to be going down into the pit, but we can all hold the rope. As we conclude our time here now, I'd like us to look at one more passage today. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. And similar to Daniel, this is another spiritual vision, except this time it was given to John, the apostle, after Jesus had already ascended into heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Earlier we saw in Daniel the vision of Christ being given a kingdom of those from every people, tribe, and language. And now here in Revelation, we seem to see the fulfillment of that promise. When all the elect from every nation and every generation standing together and praising the Lord with one voice, what a day that will be. Sounds pretty cool when you have 200 plus people singing here at River City together, praising the Lord. How much more amazing will it be to join with every believer from all time? We have been given the last page 
of the story. We don't know where we are in the middle of the story, but we know how it ends. And we know the mission that we have been given. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded you. And behold, he is with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious vision that we have that someday those of us in Christ will gather together from every tribe, tongue, and language from the day of Adam and Eve until whenever you come back. Lord, joining all believers and singing your praise. Lord, what a day that will be. So Lord, I pray that you help us to have an eye on that vision. Lord, with an eye on Christ, that we would go and make your name known to the ends of the earth. I do pray, Lord, that you would be raising up people from our body here at River City to go. Lord, that you'd be stirring in hearts a passion for those who have not yet heard the word. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we support them as part of our very own body, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we need your help in all these things. Pray that you would do it. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.